If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. These words of our Lord from the Gospel according to St. Mark, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. What are we to do with suffering? What are we to do with suffering? Today we hear of Jesus teaching to the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Must There is a double meaning behind the word suffer. We normally use it to mean the undergoing of pain or the endurance of hardship. But an older usage refers to allowing something to continue, to permit, to tolerate, to even fail to suppress or prevent. In the New Testament, this word pasco can have either a good or a bad meaning, a good or a bad connotation. But what is clear is that Jesus is here saying that whatever He faces, it is inevitable. His passion cannot be any other way. It is something which He is both allowing and something which He will suffer. In this season of Lent, there is an inevitability to that which we anticipate. There is an inevitability to the Lord's cross and passion. It is coming. We cannot avoid it. To be a people who anticipate the Paschal mystery is to be a people who do not try to stand in the way of this, even liturgically. This is what all of this Gospel reading is about today. Peter rebuking Jesus for this teaching that He must suffer. And what the Gospels literally tell us is that when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, this is what He means. Peter has gotten out in front of Him. He is trying to prevent Him. Peter cannot suffer suffering. When you consider it, it's a strange thing that the church would enter into this frame every year. It seems the most natural thing in the world, and yet if it were up to me or up to you, we might not think, let's voluntarily enter into a time of fasting and prayer right up to forcing ourselves to consider the cross. Why should we do things like walk through the stations of the cross? Why should we consider it all? Why is it that it's something more than just morbid curiosity? that drives us to think upon the cross. It seems to be a very strange thing for the incarnate Son of God to say that He must suffer. Is anything a must for God? Can God even suffer? But the mystery of Christ reveals these wonderful paradoxes in the person of Christ. That in Christ we can say that God has a mother. That God endured suffering. That God even died. It's no scandal. And yet it's scandalous. 
They seem to contradict each other, these ideas, and yet they co-inhere in Christ Himself. These are not contradictions, but rather at the heart of the mystery of the incarnate Christ. Jesus knows the inevitability of His own death. He knows it as God and man. He knows the inevitability of His own suffering. And He does not fight it. He surrenders to it. God surrenders. How? Why? Is it necessary? And Peter in this scene, just down from the Mount of Transfiguration, just shortly after he has confessed that Jesus is the Son of God, rebukes the Lord for saying that He must suffer. He is exercising this deeply human temptation to say in the face of inevitable suffering, no! This can be avoided! We can get you out of this! This suffering does not have to happen! Peter has set his mind on the things of man, the things of this world. This monstrous capacity to set suffering aside. To act as though the most important thing in in life is to avoid it. We Christians can say a great deal about suffering But what we must always say, what we always must say, is that it is in the person of Jesus Christ that God Himself takes on suffering. He does not try to avoid it. He does not fight it. He surrenders to it as a necessary part of His divine life. Indeed, it is the teaching of the apostles that this suffering was necessary. This they explain and prove as Paul does in Acts chapter 17. The the text literally says that they explained and proved that it was necessary that the Christ must suffer. They believe quite simply that this is the teaching of Moses and the prophets that the Messiah must suffer. And here you can absolutely think upon the reading today from Genesis chapter 22. Abraham takes his son Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. He carries in his hand the fire and the knife and his son carries on his back what? The wood of the sacrifice. Ancient Jews believe, as did many of the fathers, that this mountain, this Mount Moriah, was none other than Mount Zion. And even if this is hard to prove historically, it was very much in their consciousness. Here Abraham proves willing to suffer the loss of his son, this promised son, and therefore the loss of his inheritance. Even the loss of his name. The fact that this is commanded by the Lord does not mean that it is anything less than chosen by Abraham. Accepted, surrendered to by Abraham. Jesus, the Lamb of God, prefigured by that ram in the thicket, offers His back to the smiters. He offers His face to be spit upon. We have to know this, that He is not just a victim. Not a hapless victim of some intolerable cruelty. That's part of it. But He's also a willing priest in the sacrifice of Himself. We live in a time in which so much has been made of victimhood. And while it is demonstrably true that people are victimized and regularly, what is not so clear is how much this identity as a victim is helpful. 
when we see it as our right to avoid suffering, when we see it as either something to be wholly avoided or fought against, especially when true justice and charity are not the aim, but rather vengeance, we become captive to a kind of entitlement and pride which boils up in resentment and anger. We become gods unto ourselves, and the end is a hell of our own making. We sit there and feel sorry for ourselves, and we say, why must I suffer so much? And in the end, we become murderous and vengeful. And not, not just that, but suicidal. I don't know if you've noticed this, but some of the language regarding uh, uh, gender identity and fluidity and all of this is deeply influenced, deeply containing this language of suicide. You know, better to be honest to myself than commit suicide. Better to actually be who I think I am than kill myself. And what's actually meant is better to be a person of pleasure than a person of sacrifice. Better to be a person who, who feels right all the time than to be one who feels at odds in the world. Therefore, the only option is just to kill myself. Doesn't that make sense? No, it doesn't. It's garbage. There's no sense to it at all. And it's not just one or someone who does this. We all do it. We all say this. I'd rather die than suffer that. A human being who seeks to avoid suffering and turn to unbounded pleasure, lusts, perversions, material pleasures, the pleasures of pridefulness, which are often the most alluring, by the way. Isn't it, isn't it so satisfying to be right? Isn't it so satisfying to talk about sin, especially when it's someone else's? A human person who does this, who is one who is willing to bring suffering to others for their own pleasure, which leads to murderousness, vengeance on all who would stand in the way of one's own hedonism, will finally give up on the project. It all ends in suicide. What will ultimately be recognized is this, that if that path is followed I will die. This is not just the case on an individual level, but at the level of societies as well. A society that pursues sexual, material, and personal emancipation from the fundamental laws of nature and from the law of God is a society of death. Indeed, it is a culture of death, as John Paul II put it. It will kill to grasp this emancipation. It will kill to be free. It will kill the unborn. And it will ultimately kill itself. It will become suicidal, all the while claiming that if only this emancipation would advance further, then we wouldn't have to kill ourselves. It's silly. It's foolish. It's wrong. And the Christian can give it no quarter because at the heart of the Gospel is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who willingly accepts weakness. He humbly accepts bodily suffering. He surrenders to mental anguish 
And he empties himself on the cross. I want you to hear that again. He surrenders to mental anguish. This is the hardest thing, perhaps. Harder than the pain on his back or the pain in his head. The pain in his hands, the pain in his feet is the mental anguish of being forsaken. All of this because of people who were so resentful, so angry, so ready to avoid responsibility, so ready to avoid suffering, believing it to be expedient for one man to die on behalf of the rest. We seek a scapegoat in our anger, in our desire for unbridled pleasure. Someone has to die for it, and it better not be me. But Paul is adamant in his letter to the Romans. Chapter 6, sin leads to death. There is no real freedom in it at all. Sin holds a dominion over human life when our members are presented as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul goes on in chapter 7 to speak about this fracturing within himself. This is the very good that I want to do. I can't find, I can't do it. The very thing I don't want to do, I do it. He finds it to be a law within his members that he is broken down, conflicted. And he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? But his conclusion is this. That we are not those who have been enslaved to sin. No, by the power of the cross, by the free gift of Jesus Christ, you and I were brought from death to life. We were made instruments for righteousness. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but He who lives in me. This is why he says we are much more than conquerors. That's why he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He looks right at the cross and knows what it is awfully hard for us to see. That if a death like that didn't separate the Son of God from the Father, then our suffering will not separate us from the love of God. I must recognize this. When I am angry, when I am resentful, when I harbor grudges, and worse, when I try to avoid the suffering that is necessary not only to my own sanctification, but to my human life in general, I close in on myself. I become self-centered. When other people live rent-free in my head, when I seek to escape the pain which the Lord has assigned to me, when I seek to just escape the temptations by heaping momentary pleasures upon myself, I put down the cross. Rather than denying myself, I become self-indulgent. I become enslaved. I become one without power, without the ability to deliver myself a power and ability I never had to begin with. What must I do? How to be delivered from all of that? I must take up the cross. 
I must take up the cross. You see, there's a problem in the church today. It is this idea that Jesus does all the suffering so that you and I don't have to. It is this idea that Jesus goes to the cross so that you and I can be free of the limitations on our freedom. It's this idea that if I would be free, I must come down from the cross and only believe. But I absolutely must not suffer. I've had Christ Church parishioners come to me over the last several years and say, you know, I heard a really troubling message at my church, the church I was a part of before this. And it was something like this. If you're suffering, it's because your faith is lacking. If you're suffering, it's because God has turned away from you. If you're sick, you ought to figure out what's going on with you. There's something wrong with you. But the truth is that if I would be perfected, if I would be saved even, I must bear the cross all the way to Calvary. I must surrender to it. I must seek to be like Jesus in every way. I must surrender to His will, becoming His servant. I must endure patiently. I must face every bit of enmity with the world that this will bring. And I must choose it. This is the teaching of the Lord. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? These words should just stick in your head. Take up your cross and follow me. Those hearing these words from Jesus would have only heard those in one other place in the society of those days. The only people who ever would have heard it spoken to them were those condemned to die. That's what they'd hear from the executioner. Take up your cross and follow me. You see, Jesus... has set out to kill us. That we might live. And if I go to the cross, not just the cross of Jesus, but the crosses which the Lord has graciously given to me, I will come to view this suffering just like Jesus did as inevitable. Something which can't really be avoided. A must of the Christian life. I will come to view all consolations and pleasures as happy surprises and graces. I will cling to the cross. I will offer up my own weakness and I will surrender. The teaching of Paul on this is this. That what has been granted to us is not just the joy of believing, but to suffer for the sake of of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why does he say this? That it's not just the joy of believing, but it's been granted to us to suffer.
because you and I are engaged in the very same conflict that comes to a crucial moment on the cross. The same war against the enslavement of human people which the enemy has wrought. To suffer with Jesus is to be free. To suffer with Jesus is to be glorified. To endure pain and loss and rejection. To endure mental anguish. To be humiliated by the world is to be one who gains a real free life. Paul writes also in Romans, suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not what? Put us to shame. I'm sure that many of you, like me, were raised in the shame-based quarters of American religion. It's okay. You can laugh about it. It's more important how you feel than what you do. And you should feel good all the time. And if you don't, you should feel ashamed. Think about it. Think about the shame that we heap up. Poverty is not just something that I can take responsibility for. It's something that I should feel ashamed about. To endure sickness is not something that I should take responsibility for or embrace or whatever it might be. I should feel shame for it. One of the most surprising things in life and ministry as a priest has been this, that people will often be diagnosed with life-threatening illnesses and they will just feel ashamed. They'll have this amazing pile of shame and they'll just say, I don't know why I feel so ashamed that I need help. I don't know why I feel so ashamed that I have to go to the doctor two times a week. I feel like I'm better than that. Look around you. You'll notice it. The world around us cries out to be loved by being lavished with momentary pleasures. But temporary suffering comes and people are blown off course. Temporary suffering comes to others and we think, what did they do? People lose hope. But when the Christian trains for the kind of character that comes from suffering, hope is the result. We gain a peace which passes understanding. A substantive response to suffering which leads not to despair, but to hope. And this, beloved, is actually what is right at the very heart of Lent. And all Lenten disciplines, especially fasting, especially fasting, is to take on voluntarily pain. To take on voluntarily hunger. To take on voluntarily weakness. And I don't know about you, but when I fast, I experience mental anguish. Like, I need a sandwich now, or I'm going to kill somebody. But you take it on voluntarily. You surrender to it. Because we hope not for things which can be seen, but for things which are unseen. Our hope goes beyond the material, goes beyond physical pleasures, goes beyond the pleasure which we heap upon ourselves. 
These can only ever be sacramental signs of what is not seen. Indeed, what is rarely, if ever, seen. The very things in which we hope. Things which are eternal. Things which are glorious. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.